0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Lou Perez podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you'd like to support my work, please head over to thelouperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. You'll get to listen to my podcasts and watch my sketch comedy videos before I release them to the rest of the world. And you'll also have access to exclusive content for members only. And if you're looking for another way you can support me, you can do so by supporting my sponsors, Black Organic Cold Brew, just head over to www.blvckbrew.com and use promo code Lou for free shipping. And if you're into CBD products, please check out Paloma Verde CBD. Head over to palomaverdecbd.com and use promo code Lou for 25% off purchases over $75. All right, here we go. Tonight or today, or this morning, whenever you're listening or watching this, I am joined by Travis Brown and Corey Drake. We are going to be talking about a project that uh, both of these guys have worked on called The Woke Reformation. And uh, as, far, as far as what I know about the project, it's a docu-series. And uh, Travis, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit more about it.
1: Yeah, well, I also want to say we're also here with Nora, which you can at least
0: see her leg. Um, yeah, for the, for She those, hangs out with for me. For those of you who um, are only listening to the audio, uh, Travis has a very cute dog. Is she a puppy? No, she's like two. She's two. Very she's tiny. She's small. Yeah. She's like what, a chihuahua? What's going on
1: there? It's like, yeah, terrier chihuahua mix. She's just the sweetest. She's yeah. the sweetest thing.
0: There you go, and and for those of yeah. you who are watching, um, Travis has this setup where he's lying down on a bed, and he has what would be sort of the point of view of like uh, a bedroom in the seventies of like a, a, <laughs> a stud who just you know brings lovers back home every night and like wants to you know watch himself make love. Um, that could be what this is about for for our but for our purposes, Travis, maybe you can explain the uh, the setup. Yeah,
1: bit. I was gonna say if if only, but um uh no, I have debilitating back pain, which is why I have to rig things up so that I can lay down. I spend about ninety percent of my time laying down, which is not fun, but um, you know, I I have a really great camera crew and lighting crew and, and sound crew that helps me make this this series and um so yeah, I'm able to still do it. I, I direct from a portable cot with a similar setup to this. Wow. So I remember uh the actress isabella rosalini
0: I, th- I believe she was talking about her father and she said like her dad spent like 90% of his time in bed but i don't think it wasn't for anything like debilitating it was he just liked operating from uh from his bed so
1: interesting interesting yeah little th- little thing <laughs> there
0: but uh yeah so uh, so travis uh the the woke reformation uh, for one it's going to be uh appearing on uh, premiering and appearing i think on Locals, on Locals.com, so you know we'll put that plug uh, uh, out there, and yeah, tell us about it.
1: Yeah, yeah, so it's going to air on Locals first, uh, along with some exclusive content there, and then it eventually will be available on YouTube, because I want the widest possible audience. Um, In addition to that, I may turn it into a feature film, so there's lots of opportunities to to see it, but to see it first, you need to go to Locals, Um, and yeah, you know, I grew up In a fundamentalist Christian home, it was very kind of cult-like and really intense, very very dogmatic and tribalistic, and any anyone who disagreed was considered a heretic essentially. And um, you know, it was really hard to operate in that space and and be a free thinker of any sort. so eventually, I slowly doubt, started doubting my faith and left it behind in my late teens, early 20s. And then I was like, OK, I'm going to move somewhere where there's a lot more liberal, progressive people. I think those would be my kinds of people. And so I moved to Seattle and then I moved to Portland in 2007. And I slowly started to realize, like, there are a lot of similarities to this, like, pretty far left leaning city and group of people uh, as to what I grew up with, especially when you know the social justice warriors and activists started being even more loud and predominant in you know on social media uh, in the mid 2010s um <clears throat> so that really bothered me because i saw a lot of similarities uh between what i grew up with and what i was experiencing just on social media or with within friend groups etc and i thought man there's 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 something to this so then i i became friends with pete bogosian and um he's been talking about this stuff for a long time. And he was, he and James Lindsay were calling it a religion back in 2015. I think it was. And so that really intrigued me. And I thought, you know, Hey, it's a good opportunity to, to document the origins of this stuff and to help people understand it better. Uh, So that's kind of the motivation.
0: And, and uh, you know, we hear the word woke uh, used a lot. Um, uh, Do you, or, you know, Corey, like what, what do you guys, if you had to define woke and, you know, maybe Corey, you want to uh, talk about that.
2: Yeah, sure. If, if I had to define the word woke, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is misguided, um, but really it's, it's essentially an ideology arising from postmodernism that uh, ostensibly seeks to solve a number of uh, deep seated social problems. Um, although um, it is also characterized by a hyper religiosity, zealous behavior, People right. who think that they're completely uh, entitled to assume the motivations of other people and have to tear down every institution and every structure in order to build their utopia, their ideal vision. That's how I would define it.
0: And how'd you guys uh, come, come together? How'd you guys meet up uh, to be able to work on this together?
1: Okay. Can I, can I hey. throw something in there for the sure, definition? Sure. Yeah, so I, I, like, I like Corey's definition and I would just include that Um, The history of that word, uh, the etymology, uh, I think it dates back to the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, but really what it used to mean was to be awakened to injustice, which I think is uh, an honorable goal. I think it's something that we should all strive for. Some people still use it in that way, but for the most part, uh, I see it as sort of a catch-all phrase for these far-left you know, social justice, uh, critical race theory, gender theory, et cetera, ideologies. So just to clarify
0: yeah it seemed, it, uh, it seems like the scope of where injustice is you know just sort of expands and expands and expands where it's almost like it's almost like gravity it's just one of the injustice is <laughs> one of the forces that you know has a, that touches upon everything and has a, has an impact on on everything um, so uh, so how did you guys meet up and you know start you know working on this together
1: you want to take that one, Corey?
2: Um, yeah, I, I had just um, I just come out of a of a two-year-long battle with uh, terminal cancer, and so I was trying to get a sense of, okay, um, I'd been in the film industry for 23 years, I want to get back to work, I want to do things differently, something inside of me had said, there's something about the environment of working um, in Hollywood and working on film sets that I just said, um, If I'm going to go back to doing this kind of work, I want to be very intentional about it. I've been a fan of Pete Bogosian's work for a very long time. And I just happened to catch uh, an event that he was um, hosting at PSU that Travis was filming. And essentially there were students who were going up on a stage and they were all sharing their experiences of wokeness and some of their concerns. And um, Pete happened to mention that Travis was a documentary filmmaker in town here in Portland and said, oh, hey, we're in the same industry. I didn't know that there were people in my field who were questioning this ideology. And so immediately I looked Travis up, saw that he had a number of projects, documentary projects um, that he was producing um, that questioned some of these ideas. So I filled out a survey, shared some of my own experiences of uh, encountering the woke on film sets and how I felt it negatively impacted me. And he got back to me straight away. It just seemed like uh, we hit it off and next thing you know, I'm in his show and we've been friends ever since.
0: Yeah. And with totally. your, with, you know, battling terminal cancer, what, what kind of uh, cancer was it specifically?
2: Stage four colorectal. And the crazy thing about this whole situation that I'll say is that cancer doesn't really run in my family. So I do believe that there was a psychosomatic component to it. And I think some of that I owe to just the stress I was dealing with in the industry.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. And, and did you ask yeah, also- oh I'm sorry. I was just gonna ask like your so your your politics or uh, did it did it change as you were as you were going through your your battle or like did you have a you know awoke moment uh, if, if you will and you know awaken to something
2: else? Sure, sure not really no I've, I've always been very um, skeptical of all true belief systems. I don't really care if you're the left or the right I see it as a fake dialectic that is managed by some very elite interests. So I'm the sort of person who just takes issues one at a time on their face and I engage with them on their individual merit. So I I was never on the left, I was never on the right. I would say if anything, I've always had a bit of a libertarian bent and I'm a very capitalist person, although I do recognize the limitations inherent to that um, as a belief system, certainly. Um, but in terms of my politics, I have never identified with either side, just gives me an issue and I'll weigh in. So the moment for me really was um, just being on sets and, and hearing people that I was working with. So I'm, I'm in camera department, I'm a some cinematographer, sometimes I'll play other roles, but always within the same department. So first assistant camera, focus puller, that sort of thing. And I would always overhear these conversations that people would have about various social justice issues. And no one would ever ask me for my opinion, but they certainly seem to be experts on what they consider to be the black experience, which mm-hmm. I take issue with because I don't think that's a thing in particular.
0: Yeah. I remember being on, on Segs. I, I do, uh, I, I do comedy and it was um, some years back, maybe like six or seven years back. And for some reason uh, we, we were having some downtime and, one of the actresses uh, just started a conversation about, I think it was healthcare, you know, and they brought up the uh, the Koch brothers, you know, which is all, you know, automatically, you know, it's not going to be good if the Koch brothers are brought up. And they were talking about the Koch brothers and regarding healthcare. And then they started saying that the Koch brothers are against immigration. And I was like, my, you know, my, my uh, mind just started reeling because one of the, biggest criticisms against the Koch brothers being libertarians is that they're quote unquote open borders, you know, so it was, uh, uh, and I I think I may have offered a a correction uh, to the, uh, to the record uh, that I don't think went over very well. Um, but, uh, you know, I have no idea if, uh, if that necessarily affected my, uh, my future prospects, but uh, it was, it was a very, it, it was very weird in that it's like, is this an actual conversation or is it a one-sided lecture that it, it's almost like we have a hive mind and this is on everybody's mind. So I'm just speaking our thoughts out loud, you know, as a way to sort of say, all right, we're still on the same team, everybody here. Okay. These are still the things that, that we believe. Uh, Travis, you can, oh, sorry.
2: Do you mind if I just speak yeah, to that yeah. real quick? Sure. Because what you just said um, about the, the sort of chilling effect uh, in this situation that you mentioned, uh, that ties in directly to what I was saying about the psychomatics, psychosomatics of cancer is, is the fact that I had spent 23 years working on these sets, being around very progressive people who were always having these kinds of conversations. I would say much more recently has that become a feature of being on a set, but I would always keep quiet. And I would keep quiet because for me, I knew I was doubting their conclusions. And I wanted to engage in the epistemology of what they were saying. Okay, how do they know what they know? But I didn't feel I could even do that effectively without tarnishing myself, getting a label slapped on me and being blacklisted from the industry. So I stayed quiet. And I think that contributed to my stress and to me getting sick.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's a huge, like you said, it's a huge risk because, uh, you know, oftentimes it's, and nowadays, you don't necessarily know how someone is going to react to just disagreement, and and also that there is something rather just unprofessional about you know having you know these kinds of uh, discussions uh, on a you know at, on a workplace. You know, and uh, I've had the experience, fortunately, of um, producing you know sketch comedy and having you know actors of all of all stripes uh, involved. And they're having conversations about politics and stuff, and I'm just like, I don't, okay, I don't care. We just, we, we need to shoot this thing. We need to, you know, get this over with. And <laughs> right, I'm happy that right. you guys are talented. Otherwise, maybe I wouldn't want to put up with your shit. Um, <laughs> but uh, Travis, uh, you were gonna say say something, I think. So.
1: Oh, it just <clears throat> when you're talking about, you know, people essentially virtue signaling on set and making sure that everyone has the right opinions i mean again that just reminds me of my experience growing up with the fundamentalist version of christianity where people would do the same thing i mean just in a different in a different context and different set of beliefs but it was the same kind of behavior and also what would come along with it would be a um often excuse me um a kind of self-righteousness like you know, if you don't follow this set of beliefs, if you don't agree with us 100%, you you are wicked and evil. I mean, literally, this was what was told to me. And my, my dad would quote Jeremiah 17, 9, which is the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. So whenever I disagreed with him, even though I was a Christian at the time and believed it, I was told that um, that my heart is, I'm deceiving myself that my heart is wicked. You know, I mean, it, it really <laughs> robbed one of, uh, any opportunity for, for, uh, self-confidence. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, so I see the same kind of thing with this woke shit. It's like, you know, if you don't, if you don't go 100% along with what we call anti-racism, you are a racist, you know, you're a bad person. I mean, that, and that's the worst word you can call somebody in 2021, in my opinion. Um, and yet, It's people are called that all the the time because they don't fit a particular mold. Well, now
0: something really interesting is happening in regards to racism where I feel like uh, it it almost feels like uh, a few months ago being called a racist was the worst thing that could possibly happen. But now you have people openly Mm. saying uh, we're all racist. Every person is racist. (laughs) I am going to step up and proclaim my racism. And I'm thinking like, like are you out of your fucking mind? Like, how are you, you know, it's like, well, I'm not with you on that. It sounds like you're just, you know, sort of proclaiming something about right. yourself and hoping that you can sort of hide out in the crowd,
1: you know? Yeah. Robin D'Angelo, of course comes to mind. I mean, yeah, her book, in her book, she admits not only that she's racist, but even recounts a tale of her showing up to a park where there was, she was going to attend a birthday party and she didn't know who the people were. There was a group of of black folks and a group of white folks. And she thought to herself and she admits this in the book, oh, I hope it's not with the black folks. And I'm thinking, wow, you really are kind of racist. Like why the hell, like what's what's wrong with you? And then not only that, she extrapolates as you say onto everyone else. So everyone must be this way. And I have the solution now. I mean, she's clearly what I like to call that a new style of televangelist because that's what she, i mean she's just selling bullshit i haven't had the
0: um the uh the fortune of uh, of reading her book yeah but I, <laughs> I i know uh hopefully friend, i'll
1: save you the trouble
0: a friend of mine was at was was uh, uh he was reading and he was asking the question it's like like does anyone else like are these genuine interactions with black people like who you know who has these sorts of uh Sorts of interactions, uh, Corey. For for, for those people, for those people who are who are just listening to this, Corey, I, I take it <clears> you're a black man. I think is has that worked? Is that to say that or?
2: Well, it's part of my identity. I mean, I've, right. I've got some mixed heritage, some Jewish heritage too, and i was primarily raised Jewish. But uh, yeah, I mean, for all working purposes, I'm just me. I'm just right. Corey. I've I've never approached the world's um, through this lens of, oh, I have a specific racial identity and therefore it must color everything that I do and say. And it's interesting, I, I was having a conversation um, yesterday actually with, with Pete Bogosian about this very thing. Um, and I was saying to him that, you know, like I've actually, as much as it, I feel somewhat ashamed to admit it, I've, I've never had a Black friend in the states anyway mm. and and we got into this interesting cultural discussion about you know why that might be and really what it is is the fact that um i grew up in a completely different cultural context we, we were moving from place to place throughout my entire upbringing uh obviously uh i have a specific inflection a specific accent, a way of speaking and anytime i've encountered a black person in the united states i always get this absolute hostility there's no curiosity there. There's no, oh, tell me more about you as an individual. It's just straight up hostility and distrust. Wow. Um, and yeah. And so th- that's, that's something that um, that was part of, I, I think, the woke moment for me um, was, was really having a lot of time to sit with that and reflect on that and kind of say, okay, why might this be occurring? Um, and what does it actually mean to be Black in the context of the United States? Why should that carry so much baggage? And why do I feel that um, if I were to say, oh, yes, I'm 100% Black, which I'm not, also what comes along with that is all of the cultural assumptions around Blackness that get foisted upon you by particularly the woke. And I can't claim any of those uh, things as my own. I came from an intact family. My parents stayed together. I grew up very affluent. I had a tremendous amount of opportunities growing up. So I I don't own the black experience trademark, whatever that mm-hmm. is.
0: Yeah, I uh, I remember uh, a few years ago uh, reading an article, or maybe it was a it was a few articles about how uh, black black American actors were being passed over for roles by all these black Brits coming here and taking our fucking jobs, which I I you know, and I was like, Oh my God. It's so funny because one of my, I mean, one of my favorite actors is Idris Elba and mm. I absolutely love Idris Elba in the wire. He's fantastic. He was great in the office as well. And then uh, recently only a few months ago, uh, somebody at the BBC, I think it was like a diversity officer or something like that, complained that his character Luther wasn't black enough that <laughs> idris elba's character you know this hard-nosed detective in in london wasn't black enough and it was like well what, what do you mean by this it's like yeah he should have more west indian friends uh and he should eat more like west indian food and it's like oh, man it's kind of like the show luther is kind of like boilerplate detective you know uh, he's on cases and, you know, he has a, a Trump, you know, he has a, he works too much. So his marriage, you know, breaks up and all, and all that. And it's like, damn, what are you, <clears throat> uh, it, it, the, um, the, uh, you know, there, there's always the, the image of the snake eating itself, you know, and the or- the or- uh, so, yeah, yeah, but some, something to, remind, to remember is that the snake also has two penises. So it's sort of like yeah. the snake is also <laughs> sucking its own dick on this. Uh, if there's, if there's a happy image, you know, in,
1: in that. Um, uh, uh tra- Travis. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just amazing to me how, uh, essentialist this, you know, woke movement is. And I always like to put things in context. So, you know, Corey mentioned the black experience. I think to myself, what I, what I want someone to be talking about the white experience. I mean, what the fuck is that? That's like, that's like some KKK shit. I don't know what that is. And I, I, and I don't know why people think it's fine to just throw that term around for black people white you know whatever color a person is i mean i really like heather mcdonald's framing of this which is she talks about how much gonad or or she talks about how much melanin is in, in your skin she talks about gonads and melanin which i think is hilarious and like the perfect way to frame this because i mean you know martin luther king jr was correct in focusing on the content of our character i know that's that's used almost as a trope now but it really was extremely insightful And that's that insight and that perspective we were starting to really achieve. And and now it's being reversed by these, you know, anti-racists and uh, it's just really unfortunate. And so I'm totally with Corey and, and, you know, yeah, I happen to have less melanin in my skin than him, but who gives a shit, you know, I, I also like Camille Foster's framing of this where he doesn't think of himself as black because race is really essentially a construct which the anti-racists do admit, but then they, then they obsess over it. Um, so they admit that it's a co- social construct and that it's more appropriate to talk about populations rather than, you know, races, uh, but, then, but then they obsess over it. And I think it should just stop with, it's just a construct, like, let's just m- move past it as much as we can. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I yeah. uh, oh, So go ahead, Corey. Yep. Yes, I was going to say, uh, yeah, the, the, the essentialism of it all, um, yeah, that's something that I, I, I've always, I almost have an allergic reaction to it, um, because I can certainly tell that the, the people who, at least for the most part, the, the everyday person on the street, the, the sort of uh, garden variety wokeists, I don't mean the people at the, the top of the ideology, the people at the, the kind of um, the grassroots level of it all, they think, they think they're showing cultural sensitivity. They think they're saying, oh, I'm sensitive to the experiences of group X in the context of the United States or wherever they happen to be. I understand that their underlying motivations might be genuine, but I don't understand when we got away from individualism as, as a virtue and, and really getting to know a human being authentically person to person without having to uh classify them as part of a, a larger group I, i'm not sure exactly when that shift occurred
0: yeah because i remember i'm a uh, i'm 39 so i grew up uh, you know in the late 80s you know early 90s and i remember you know when it came to tv shows like all my favorite tv shows were uh you know mostly black casts i in living color martin rock how dare rock, you <laughs> rock a <laughs> uh, living single um, chris rock had a had a show on hbo for a while uh, you know stand up comedy as well uh, you know obviously hip hop uh, and and you know rap were you know if not the most uh, popular music at the time it was it was right before it became the most popular more than country and so when I look around now, I'm like, I, I asked the same question. I don't know, like, when did this happen? Because it's it's almost like the the country that I grew up in doesn't, it never happened. You know, it's sort of like a, it, it, there's an alternate universe
1: where where all that really great, great stuff happened. Did, Travis, do you have
0: uh, thoughts on that? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I think it's been a slow erosion. I mean, Corey mentioned the roots of this stuff in postmodernism. So it was really like in the eighties and nineties that this stuff started to sort of fester and and grow and really be concocted in our university system by by, uh, activist scholars like Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, uh, many, many many more. Um, But they have been sort of setting up this architecture behind the scenes for a really long time. And so for most people, you know, it was like, it was 2020 when it like hit them with, you know, they, with, with this stuff, when they feel like they were hit with a ton of bricks, um, because it just seemed like it was out of nowhere. But the reality is, is it, it's not out of nowhere. It's been, as Pete talks about, it's been festering in colleges, in colleges of education for decades now. And it, you know, they, they very slowly started to change the language, very slowly started to change How we should view each other. I mean, slowly also reintroducing segregation, for instance. I mean, you know, I also want to be clear. This this movement, I think, achieves the opposite of what it claims, and I think Corey can speak to that too. But, um, you know, it it it's not really all about equality. You know, it's about equity, which is very different. And, um, I just I think it's really sad because there are injustices out there that we should fight, and yet, you know, this movement doesn't help us do that. And And so that's something I hope will come through in my series um, is just an understanding of this stuff. The first two episodes are based largely on uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose's book, Cynical Theories, which is a brilliant book that maps out all this stuff and just how things have slowly eroded over time and changed over time. Corey, were you going to add to that?
2: Um, I, I was, I don't want to derail the point. Uh, it was just specifically about what you were saying about the culture of the 80s and 90s. Sure. We touch on it real quick. It was really interesting because um, there's a couple of things that came to my mind, just listening to you share your own experiences. One of those is music. Um, mm-hmm. Confession. I've never been into hip hop or rap music. I've always despised both. And that's mainly because of the, a lot of the cultural messaging of, uh, of the music during that time, there was a lot of, you know, drugs and violence and it seemed to, uh, elevate the worst aspects of a Black stereotype uh, and, and celebrate those things in a very cynical way. Um, I was much more into heavy metal, punk rock, and classical music. That was, that was me. And so, you know, when I first discovered um, Black punk bands or Black metal bands, like, uh, and I mean Black as in melanin, not just the sound of the tone, uh, like Death um, or Bad Brains. Um, You know, it was amazing to me, but I always just looked at them as great musicians. I didn't really give a flying fuck that they were black. I didn't care at all. Um, And the same thing with with television. I mean, you know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. So when Star Trek got its first black captain, um, Benjamin Sisko, in Deep Space Nine, is played by Avery Brooks, I was much more interested in how he was as a character on that show, dealing with the situations he was in. The fact that he was black didn't factor in to him being a fantastic captain. Um, so I just wanted to touch on those things because I feel like the, the there's a there's an ideological component to it, just as, as Travis is saying, but there's also a cultural component as well, and and it seems that the culture sets up certain expectations, uh, and I think the culture now, well, you have to have your black character and your female character in this, that, and the other, and they have to cleave to a specific set of essentialist characteristics, and I think that's very limiting and uncreative, um, and,
0: insulting. You know, uh, so you mentioned the band Death. Uh, there's a, a great documentary i think it's called the band death uh band and it's death. yeah and it's nice. uh three brothers from detroit who were sort of i guess they're sort of like proto-punk sort of punk before uh...
2: <laughs> my dog sorry
0: <laughs> okay uh, <laughs> your dog's communicating with uh what was it is it nora what's the
1: uh oh yeah nora yeah, yeah. she can't uh, hear
0: <laughs> is she deaf Oh no! You have, <laughs> no you have, no, you have no Headphones yeah. in a, <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. like, "You are a very wonderful person to be taking on a deaf dog." Um, but it, it's a uh, it, it's a really great documentary band called Death, and uh, I got to see it nice. in the in the theaters uh, years back. But there is something too in the culture where I remember growing up, uh, growing up in the suburbs of Queens, and going to Long Island to see like punk shows, and uh, I forget what the band's name was, but their drummer was black. And we were like, cause it was like mostly like white and Jewish kids and, and stuff. And it was like, well, this band has got to be cool because it's a black guy playing punk rock. Uh, they were actually, re- they were actually really good, but there was something like, Oh, cool. What we must be in a really cool spot because there's a black guy who's here. Uh, He's sort of christened it. You know, it's like, all right, you guys, are, you guys are cool. So I, I, I mean, you know, I think that's part of the culture. I mean, I think that, you know, in a way that is sort of a, a a cross to bear you know where it's sort of like I'm the you know if I'm the black kid I got to be the cool one you know I got to sort of (laughs) sort of make all my friends feel a little cooler that they you know that they could uh, that they could hang with me Um, Mm -hmm. uh, but um, uh, with the with the uh, with the woke stuff so we we touched on we have we have woke and a big part of that is this anti-racism and then there's a component of critical race theory right um yeah do you got do you touch upon that in the in the series
1: yeah yeah uh, azra nomani is uh she's one of my favorite people she's amazing she's a journalist uh, investigative journalist and uh initially she was speaking out for women's rights in islam but then her son um w- was attending this high school and some of this stuff was introduced this Really backwards diversity training, you know, diversity training, sensitivity training. So she in, ended up um, investigating this and reading, like, okay, w- what are the roots of this this ideology? So that took her into critical race theory, and so she she gave a, a great interview, uh, you know, of which I will include parts in the in the series. Uh, I've read some of the the work myself, the critical race theory work. Um, it's fascinating because, I mean, it well, one, it does underlie most of the the everyday anti-racist ideology that's that exists now and two um what i thought was really interesting and and telling was toward the end of the book they were talking about spreading these ideas and they literally used the word converts oh really and yeah that really stuck out to me i was like wow okay so you're not even really trying to hide this it really is like a religion even to you uh and so i thought that was pretty fascinating
0: and and from the i mean what we can glean from the history of um you know christianity or or islam it's either you know you could willingly convert or right. you can be conquered and you know sort of you know forced to uh, convert
1: um oh and can i add, add to that yeah sure. something i think is really fascinating is that um i think on a large scale people are being indoctrinated and and sort of being converted without their, their, their realization or without knowing it. Uh, And one of the key aspects of indoctrination, I went through this myself is not knowing that it's occurring, right? You don't know that you're being indoctrinated into a new religion. And so my uh, point is that I think that that's happening on a mass scale and lots of people who are otherwise good and intelligent people are being indoctrinated into this cult, like uh, anti-racism, um, you know, that's based around the critical race theory ideology.
2: Can I add something to that real quick? Sure. Yeah. Um, just what you were saying. Please. So. The, and the interesting thing about that is that um, the ideology fundamentally relies on people's good nature, right? Because if, if mm. you are genuinely a, a racist, terrible person and someone accuses you of being a racist, you are just like, yeah, so what? The, the sky is also blue, big deal. <laughs> Right. And so um, if, if, if there are so many people who are willing to go along with this, uh, feeling like it's the virtuous thing to do, um, then, then, then clearly they're not racist. I mean, logically, that would follow.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's really unfortunate the way it plays off of people's good instincts, as Corey said. I mean, most of the people who are going along with this, unless they're the Robin DeAngelos or the Ibram X. perhaps, um, most of them are like just thinking, like, "Oh, this is this is the new morality of 2020 and 2021." Like, so of course we have to be for social justice. I mean, Corey and I have talked about this at length, but these people are brilliant in their marketing because they use words like antifa, anti-fascist, anti, you know, anti-racism. You know, all all of these words sound good, and yet they mean something very different from what we, we would assume.
0: And the fact that this. You know, grew out of academia, right? It sounds smart. Like it sounds like, right. Well, this is. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're evolved, if you're an intelligent person, then you have to get with this stuff. And what I, what I find, I think what one of the, one of the struggles, uh, I think, overall in sort of combating this stuff, is you have this really, you know, dense academic jargon. And some of it is so dense that even if you um, if you criticize it and then you end up you know picking it apart, you're like sort of just one step below the same jargon. So it's sort of you might be limiting right. your the audience that uh, that you have that could actually understand what the hell uh, what the hell you're talking about. And I've I've, I've enjoyed like um, uh, James Lindsay. Uh, I think James Lindsay does a really great job in long form like on on podcasts where he's able to really you know get mm. into this stuff um but you know when it comes to the writing and what he's responding to like it can it could really be dense and it could be really tough to uh um you know it's a tough to bring if you're a layman you know if you're like wait i'm just i just want to send my kids to school and you know have them you know go on to college and you know and all and all that
1: and that's on that's on purpose. Some of the language is impenetrable on purpose. Like for instance, Judith Butler is one of the worst writers I have ever had the displeasure of reading. <laughs> but I read Gender Trouble, and it, I mean it's it's intentionally confusing. It's intentionally. Uh, not clear because that way, if you, if you try to criticize it, if you try to poke holes in it, she can be like, well, that's not really what I meant. You just don't understand. There's like this extra level of intelligence that you don't happen to have. And therefore we can get away with, uh, and it's not just her. It's m- many of these people just intentionally being um, or obfuscating in their writing, yeah. which it make, it makes it really hard to criticize. Any Anytime I see the word
0: hegemony, I'm like, uh oh, what's <laughs> what's going on here? Why are you why are you right. using
1: that word? Um, Just patriarchy, yeah, all those words. <laughs> yeah,
0: and and did you guys uh, go through, um, you know, college or you know grad school? Is this something that that you found when you uh, when you were in school studying, or is this did this come later? This kind of stuff. I like Corey go first
1: if For you sure. want.
2: Sure, yeah. Um it it was. Uh, I did. I did undergrad and grad school. Um I was crazy enough to go to film school. And um, you know, the thing is too, I, I will say that it the seeds of it were there. Um, you know, the, I I feel like the fundamentals um uh, were, were definitely a part of every single course I took, but I don't think it was anywhere near as thick as I'm hearing about now. Yeah. Um I do feel that at least from a pedagogical standpoint. I did get an actual education. I was at least, um, you know, I did at least come away knowing about film as language, how to actually make a movie, how to uh, mise-en-scene, camera work, those things. I came away with all of that, but I definitely also came away with a foundation in postmodernism, which I didn't sign up for. Um, So, you know, reading um, Derrida, reading Foucault, things of that nature. I'm glad I did it because at least I can understand the ideological roots of this belief system, but I never bought into it. And um, it's a shame to think that uh, even back then, you know, this was 2000, 2001, um, having to pretend to go along with these ideas just so that I could Mm -hmm. get a good grade in the class and get my degree. Um, But internally knowing, oh, I feel like I'm I'm telling lies and I don't want to be in that position. It felt horrifying emotionally. so once I got out into the industry, I said, okay, great, good. I can leave the theory behind, focus on the work. And uh, boy, was I naive because I encountered it everywhere.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, you know, similar thing, similar thing with me, where there's there was sort of this idea, all right, this is kind of the bullshit you only read in college and you don't have to worry about it. It's not going to have an impact anywhere else in the real world. Um, mm-hmm. You know, write your essay, you know, Get your passing grade and just just move on to the uh, to the next required you
1: know course that you need to take. And uh, Travis, what, what about you? Uh, no, it's interesting. I I really despised the idea of going to university because it was I went to a private Christian school that told me you will not amount to anything unless you go to a four year university, and they lied to me about what classes I had to take just to graduate from high school. So I already had just a negative taste of. Uh, you know in in my mouth so uh, all i did was go to uh, a tech school i got a computer information science degree just an aa that's as far as my education went and then i just started reading about this stuff you know i was interested in philosophy and film and so i just sort of read up on it myself and what what's interesting is though i think i think in like 2007 2008 when i first moved to portland um I, I met these these guys that were also in, interested in philosophy, and they introduced me to the deconstructionists, as we called them then, uh, but the, those postmodern philosophers like Foucault and Derrida and, and uh, others, and they were obsessed with them, and So we did this sort of like philosophy night once a week, we would like share certain writings and then we'd have a conversation about it. And I, I found them to be insufferable after, uh, after just a few times because all they would do is pick apart what you had to say. That was all that they would do. And they wouldn't offer anything meaning meaningful, anything useful. They just would deconstruct it. And so I, I had kind of an earlier, uh, uh, um, window into this, but not from college, but from people who probably were college educated and, and, uh, yeah, I just found it uh, terrible and frustrating and meaningless. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: I couldn't really relate to that, Travis, because I, I'll tell mm. to you, too. It, it, it was interesting at first to kind of hear these people out and say, okay, deconstructionism, tell me more. Um, right. But then over time, I noticed that the, the two things that seemed to always follow the people who had these ideas was one, a, a sense of nihilism about everything. Yes. And, yeah. and second of all, they never, they couldn't make good art they couldn't tell a good story. They couldn't make a good film. They couldn't connect with you emotionally. Everything had to be torn down and deconstructed. And it's a hell of a lot easier to burn a house down than it is to build one. And I seem to to pick that up very early on. And so I just said, okay, it might be my hands of this. And I didn't take it on.
0: Yeah, especially when you're- I I will say- oh yeah.
2: Oh, I I was was just just gonna-
1: Yeah. Oh, please go ahead. <laughs> cool.
0: I'm I'm keeping this in, ladies and gentlemen. This is we are three people speaking over Zoom. <laughs> this is the way you do it. Um, no, I, I, do. I was just I was just gonna say, you know, Corey, like you're you know, you're going to school, you know, learning, you know, to how to use a camera, how to set up scenes, how to do stuff that has, you know, there's physical value there that you will need to make this stuff. And one of the things that I absolutely can't stand is when I go. I enjoy going to museums with my wife. It's it's you know one of our one of our pastimes. And when I when I go and especially with the, the modern stuff or the like the contemporary stuff, almost every single time they will have a film that's been shot recently. And not ten times out of ten, it is garbage. It is absolute garbage. Where oh, wow. you're like, how the hell are you you know, we have people producing things with their iPhone that look phenomenal. And then this person, this artist, this visual artist gets a grant for I don't know how many tens of thousands of dollars to make shit. And it's almost like it's almost <laughs> like the it's almost like that. there's a game that, uh, you know, or, or a performative nature where everybody involved in the production of this thing is going to pretend like something is happening there that isn't, you know, it's like, there's no skill, there's no, you know, no <laughs> polish. Um, so that's just, the, that's just a pet peeve of mine. I, I had to get, get that up.
2: Yeah. And oh, totally. just, just to put off that, just for a moment, I completely agree with you. And, and I'm just trying to figure out if maybe this is a generational thing. Maybe people who came up in a more um, digital, less analog uh, age have that attitude of relationship to art because um, it's just less costly for them when I was in film school, we Mm. were learning on super 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter film. And so we had to spend money on every single shot and you could not afford Mm. to be frivolous with what you were shooting. And so because of that, I feel that that for the most part I came away with a deeper understanding about uh, maybe this isn't the time to mess around with deconstruction. Um, (laughs) And I think now when you have a shooting ratio that's 20 to one because it's on your iPhone, maybe you're less attached to the mm-hmm. process in that way yeah. i don't know
0: yeah it's, it's one of the it, it's great that it's opened it up you know so much to you know to the masses but then it's also yeah it's, it's sort of you know what does the quality look like i you know i guess and you know what right. does the future hold you know for for that and travis before i, I cut you off I'll... Oh,
1: no, that's okay. I, I was kind of going a different direction just to give the devil his due. Um, you know, there is a usefulness in deconstructing things and understanding how they work. And, you know, there's a usefulness in being skeptical of what the postmodernists called meta-narratives, which are just these grand narratives like Christianity or Hinduism or Islam or, or to even the idea of democracy. I think it's super useful to deconstruct those things to a point so that you understand how they work. So you can jettison the things that don't work. Um, and it's sort of reminding me of um, Thomas Sowell's The Constrained and Unconstrained Vision. Uh, for anyone who hasn't checked that out, I highly recommend it, it's a brilliant book uh, and I won't do it justice here in, in describing it. But, but I think you know, in, the, in the unconstrained vision, as he would put it, you know, people wanna come up with new ways of being, new laws, new um, morality. And then the constrained version, people are like more uh, traditional and, and want to not necessarily upset the the whole uh, cart with the horse, if that's the right (laughs) uh, analogy. But, um, but anyways, I think there's, there's usefulness in both. And like Corey, I myself don't, don't really consider myself left or right. I, I think that those are not really very useful distinctions, but Anyways, just to, I just wanted to say that you know that there are there are times where it makes sense to deconstruct something. It's just that the the nihilism that comes along with, as Greg was saying, total deconstructionism is is really harmful and it, and it doesn't lead us anywhere positive or to any good art. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I find uh, as I've gotten older, um, I've become. Uh, i i think i've definitely become more conservative in my own you know my own dealings mm. and I, and I wonder if a lot of that has to do with me just being tired where it's sort of like um you know <laughs> upsetting the whole social order sounds like something you need a lot of cardio for and uh something that you need you know <laughs> you need more hours of sleep uh than i'm <laughs> than, than i'm getting but 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 there there is there there is something uh to the idea of you know okay let's uh, you know let's examine this let's deconstruct it let's see what's up right. but also coming to a point where you accept like well well that's how this thing works you know this right. is how it's going to work and these you know these um these ideas it's sort of like if you were to bring the same idea to uh to farming at some point you're gonna have to deal <laughs> with okay well this is the soil this is how much rain we have. This is whether or not how much it'll cost to set up, you know, some, some kind of watering system. And, you know, at the end of the growth, you know, the, you know, when harvest comes around, we either have this to, you know, uh, to dig up or we don't, uh, you could tell I'm not a farmer cause I'm using, I, I, I'm, we could, we have this to dig up or we don't, um, <laughs> But but you know to have like real world applications uh, to the to this stuff I think is is totally. is really is really necessary.
2: Um, yeah, I'm really glad that you you said that. This is something that I, I I find myself constantly trying to communicate to people that I work with, specifically people who might be a little bit younger. Is that um, it's fine to field ideas, it's fine to deconstruct and experiment, but ideological deconstruction in itself is a luxury because mm-hmm. in a situation where you're trying to really get something done and uh, deliver a tangible product, um, and certainly uh, in a survival scenario, like you're talking about with agriculture, you cannot afford to faff about with ideological deconstruction. You have to get the thing done. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, I find myself running into this more and more if I'm working with a camera trainee who's um, you know, maybe fresh out of your diversity, they wanna break all the rules. They want to do everything possible to deconstruct. And why are we doing it that way? Why? And usually, the, um, the reasoning they have behind it stems from the ideology. It's anti-capitalist, and so they don't want to have a sense of professionalism, and they don't want to honor the way things are done because it goes against the core tenets of the ideology. I find it very bizarre.
0: Yeah. Uh, in a in a previous episode, um, I had a guest, uh, Robert Tracinski, and one of the things that we talked about was his defense of the classics and his defense mm. of Beethoven and classical music and and Shakespeare. And one of the things that I brought up is that you'll, you'll often uh, see people, especially in academia, saying, you shouldn't have to read this book or watch this play or listen to this music. You shouldn't, it, it shouldn't be required. You shouldn't have to check this out. But they're making that statement from the vantage point of having already read that book, or seen right. that production, or heard that music, and they're talking to people, young minds, you know, fresh out of high school, or you know, even younger, younger, saying you don't need this, and it's like, well, you can. Uh, it's possible to you know have that foundation of the classics, and then add on to it, add on, um, you know, music or uh, stories or you know, cinema that. Uh, you know, is more, you know, is more contemporary, you know, Um, and, and, and it's, uh, it's one of those things, you you know, talking about critical race theory, there's been a lot of debate on uh, what that looks like in, in schools, you know, uh, in particular public schools. And I know that there's a big, uh, there's been a lot of pushback, especially from people on the right, and, and also uh, people on the left as well, saying, you know, we don't want this stuff taught in public schools. And I've been seeing, I, I don't know if it's just kind of like, I don't know how much of this just only happens on Twitter. I don't know how many these conversations <laughs> are actually happening in the real world. Um, but I've seen quite a few people saying, well, if you believe in free speech, then you shouldn't be against banning CRT. Uh, and it's like, but it, it's, it, we're talking about, you know, currently as it stands, public education, you know, these ideas being taught in public schools. Um, have you guys thought about that or want to weigh
1: in? Well, yeah. One of the main problems is that it's not just taught as an idea; it's taught as the gospel truth, you know. And and in addition to that, like I mentioned earlier, they literally uh, at certain workplaces and schools are segregating people. I mean, I mean, this is just batshit insane. Like we we got rid of this a long time ago, and now it's being reintroduced. And um, you know, I I would be okay with it if it was like here's from this legal tradition from people like Kimberly Crenshaw et cetera. these are ideas like intersectionality which are, are actually kind of useful you know they have some truth to them um, and I, I would be okay with that more at like high school or college level but the fact that it's infused in and in through uh, K through 12 schools uh, and 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 people if they're white are often taught that they're the oppressors and if they' have dark if their skin is darker than a brown paper bag for instance this is an anecdote from that I heard from Pete, then, then they're, you know, if, there's, if their skin is lighter than the, than the paper bag, then they're part of the oppressor, oppressor group. And if it's darker than the bag, then they're part of the oppressed group. And so that, I mean, like, it just sets people up for failure and, and contention. And so, no, I, I, I mean, I'm all for free speech. And I think it'd be fine to be like, hey, these are some ideas that these people have. But to, to, to put it out there as like the gospel truth, I think is really problematic.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with what Travis has expressed. I mean, it, it, if this, let's say, CRT wokeism, call it what you will, if it was taught alongside other points of view and you were able to uh, examine them as objectively as possible and then debate the merits of each and come away with your own conclusions, okay, fine. Um, but we know that the people who are pushing it in, in schools in particular are not acting in good faith. Um, I've often thought about this um, just from the context of having uh, kids I don't have kids yet I do plan to at some point point. Um, and I often think about you know how would I feel about my kid coming home and, and saying that uh, an instructor or someone who's an authority figure at the school said something to them that undermined their self-esteem um, because they look a certain way they can't be expected to do x y or z I would be absolutely infuriated and I, I do worry about if I have kids and they're in any sort of institution, um, you know, the education institution in particular, I worry about someone saying something to them that undermines their ability to see themselves as they see themselves. Um, mm. I don't want them to be casualties of this, this war that we're having for who can uh, claim ownership of universality, because that, that seems to me that that's a lot of what this is.
0: Yeah, I, I, have, a, I have a friend uh, who... Um, um, he's a, he's Jewish. His wife is Puerto Rican and they have a, they have a a couple of young kids. And one day his daughter came home from school and said, daddy uh, asked, you know, daddy, are you white? And he was (laughs) very taken aback. He's like that, you know, where did this, you know, where this come from? And she's like, because, you know, white people did a lot of bad things. And I want to know if, if, if you're white and, you know, um, I, I have a, I have a son and I have a, a, another another one on the way, and I'm just imagining how I'm going to handle if I you know if I need to handle those those conversations. And I'm also in a weird, I guess my children are going to be in a weird spot because they have a, a, a Spanish surname, right? But at least, mm. you know this one currently is blonde hair and blue eyed. You know, so he's going to have to deal with the fact that he is both the oppressor and the oppressed. So, you know, that you know that I think that's a that's a pretty heavy burden to place on a child, you know, especially if he has to, you know, come in every morning and and, um, you know, bow at the altar of whatever, you know, whatever new God is being uh, is being created.
1: Totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it just sets up so much conflict. It's unnecessary. I mean, you can have. Conversations about actual social justice—you can have conversations about the civil rights, about what what remaining injustices there might actually be in society. This is this is not the way to do it. This you know anti-racist uh, ideology from you know the people like Ibram Kendi and, and others—that's not the way to root out injustice. It's not the way to um, to find whatever remaining problems are left in our society. It it it's just totally derailing us. I think Douglas Murray and the Madness of Crowds talks about how these rights issues you know gay rights women's rights uh, minority rights are kind of like a train that's just about to pull into the stop and for no apparent reason at all just goes veering off the track and out into the bushes (laughs) you know and that that seems to be a pretty good uh, um, metaphor for what's going on here like we were just about to the place where everyone was equal i mean growing up in the 80s and 90s for me even though i grew up in an ultra conservative town we hung out with you know black kids and they were some of our best friends like we just didn't even think about it it just wasn't a thing no one talked about it and we knew the history of racism and all that but for us like that that was one thing my parents definitely got right is that you know um, from their perspective you know god loves everyone the same doesn't matter what your skin color is and um you know whether or not a person believes in God is sort of irrelevant. I think everyone should, should um, think that way. Just treat everyone the same and not make these distinctions, these ever finer distinctions that are just derailing our progress. Yeah. I think my, my best friend from, I think it was probably first grade to fifth
0: grade was Reggie and uh, Reggie was mm. black. And what really made it like that we were perfect to be best friends is we had the same birthday. So oh, nice. I, I was like the stars aligned I don't know who was born first, but we were both born on February 26th. So it was, it was meant to be. Um, so with, um, with, uh, uh, with the woke reformation with the, the docuseries, um, what do you guys, you know, hope to hope to do? Like, how, how do you, you know, change things or how do you, where's the hope there, I guess. Yeah.
1: You know? Well, um, yeah. So I mentioned earlier that the first couple episodes are all about the origins of this stuff to help people understand it. And then really from there on, it's about, um, you know, what this is doing to our society. And then also, I think I dedicate like three episodes to what can be done about it. Like, what are some practical things that everyday people can do? And I want people to feel hopeful. Um, You know, a lot of people have reached out since I was lucky enough to go on Dave Rubin uh, or the, the Rubin Report um saying like oh i feel i feel some hope like i'm so glad you're making this content and you know i am lucky enough to be able to tell Corey's story of surviving cancer and 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 comparing the cancer of wokeness to the cancer of you know the, the actual cancer that he experienced um so we, we have a really great episode there i think um and uh so i'm hoping it will, it will inspire people and then um you know, like Douglas Murray and Nancy Rommelman and Azra Nomani, all gave very concrete things that people can do, you know, whether it's, you know, your, your child's being taught this stuff, you know, pull them out of the school or, you know, attend board meetings or, you know, a number of different things that people can do in, in the real world to actually move the needle.
2: Uh, Corey? And I think for me, my hope for the film um, is, is many folds, um, but if I had to sum it up, really, it, it comes down to speaking to the people who are really involved in this ideology and letting them know, hey, you might think that this is the extension of the civil rights movement and it's meant to solve uh, problems that have been left unsolved, but it's not doing that at all. In fact, it's a grievance industry that's meant to line the pockets of some very cynical, um, self-interested people and uh, also too, I want, to, I want to contribute to the discussion around returning to individualism. I mean, I think, I think mm. that's really my primary goal is, is, is let's get away from uh, group classifications, let's get away from the essentialism and let's get back to dealing with each other as human beings face to face again. And, and I think thereby you can actually foster empathy, and that will solve a lot of social problems if people just can deal with each other as individuals. Stop the uh, you know the, the, the grifting that's going on between uh, various groups. Um, I think that's my my biggest hope and goal for the whole film.
0: Yeah, it's 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 so odd that in a time where you would think there would be like sort of ultra individualism because. Everybody has a camera. Everybody has a, um, a method or, or means of getting their thoughts out, whether it's, you know, social media, you know, everybody uh, is, you know, literally, you know, literally taking selfies. You would think it would be all about me, 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 me. Look how great I am. Um, and I guess, for, you know, for some people, it, you know, it is, it, it is that, but to have, you know, sort of this group identity stuff, you know, coming up, you know, coming back up, and coming back up so hard. Um, yeah, it's it's something that really I don't know, boggles my mind. Yeah, just real
2: quick, just, yeah, just, real quick. just on that point. Um, I, I think it is. It is a culture of of narcissism. It is a culture of me, me, me. But the catch is that it's a culture of me, me, me on the surface. It's me, me, me as perceived by you. And what we have is we have a, a, a culture that hasn't done. Any internal work. They haven't done deep work. They haven't done shadow integration. They haven't dealt with their own trauma. They haven't looked at their own past. And they're disconnected from the universal meta narrative. Uh, they're disconnected from all of the mythological figures and historical figures who have also been through this shit before. And they're told that they shouldn't care about those things and that those things are bad and that um, if, you, if you're looking to the past for any inspiration to deal with yourself as an individual, then you're going down the wrong track. And I think that's part of it, too, is, is, is really getting people to think about doing some internal work and doing some shadow integration and dealing with themselves before going off and trying to fix the world
1: yeah and i want to piggyback off of that and and wrap up by saying um i totally agree with Corey that we need to be we need to treat each other as individuals and not treat each other on the basis of whatever group characteristics they happen to have uh, but we are you know as you kind of alluded to lou we are a, a social species and we need we need groups actually we, we're not going to be able to get through uh successfully uh, get Uh, progress as a society if we don't have a group and so i would just say what i'm trying to do with the with the series and what i try to encourage is this idea of superordinate identities so having identities that go beyond just you know skin color or or you know what's between your legs and you know for for us since we're all in the united states that can be that could be nationalism Uh, but i would take it even further than that and say you know we should focus on on we we should focus on expanding our, our tribe as much as possible, and that's something I, I hope that people will start doing, and that will help. You know, as Corey said, increase empathy and solve a lot of a lot of social problems. Mm-hmm.
2: And it surprises me. I'll just end on this. It surprises me that more people haven't um, had that experience. Because I can remember being a kid in the 80s and playing D&D. And this is back in the day when you would get beaten up for being a geek. Um, but the mm. moment I met other kids who played D&D, it didn't matter where they came from. It didn't matter mm. anything about them. We all had a common interest and we had a hell of a lot of fun together.
0: Right on. Totally. So uh, for those of you who have uh, tuned in to this episode of the Lu Perez podcast, um, you, are my, you are my D&D so thank you for, uh, for joining me um, I want to thank again uh, Corey Drayton and uh, Travis Brown the uh, docuseries is The Woke Reformation and we'll have links to it in the description it's on locals.com and that's also where you can support my work viluperez.locals.com guys thank you so much
2: thank you it's a pleasure yeah, thanks for having me
0: Thank you so much for watching and or listening to my podcast. If you'd like to support my work, please head over to theluperez.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community. And another way to support me is by supporting my sponsors, Black Organic Cold Brew. Head over to www.blbck.com dot Use promo code Lou for free shipping. And if you're into CBD products, please check out Paloma Verde CBD.com. Use promo code Lou for 25% off purchases over $75. All right. Bye.